We're starting our Christmas messages this week, and the title of my message is Promises Kept. And I'm going to read the promises from that are made in Matthew, the opening chapters of Matthew, and talk about those promises as then in the next couple of weeks we, we dig into some of those promises, and I'm going to dig into one of them uh, this morning. Um, story was told, that, or or written, actually. Um, I forget the, the lady's name. She was Eleanor Roosevelt's uh, uh, Secretary of Human Resources. I forget what her actual title was. She was 24 uh, years Eleanor's uh, junior, and she had the job initially because Eleanor Roosevelt had made a promise to her mom about the uh, bringing her along and giving her responsibility uh, as a woman who was, during that season of our history, it was difficult for women to work and be accepted. And Eleanor Roosevelt changed a lot of that. Eleanor Roosevelt changed our perspective on uh, what First Lady is all about. She was the original First Lady. But the most notable thing at least in this young woman's mind, Christy, Christy Powers, I think was her name, was that she always kept her promises and that she was known for keeping her promises. Promises that she would make to soldiers who were in the field when she would go and, 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 and visit the troops. And they were asking for certain things. Can you? And, and at one point, it was a smaller base, but she made a promise to contact all of the families of the soldiers that were there and give them a report of how their sons were doing. And she did it herself. She didn't, she did all that. One particular soldier, not at this base, but another one was saying, I don't have a job to come back home to. And she made sure that he had a job to come back home to. She, she was known for keeping her promises. Listen, it's one thing to be motivated to keep your promises when people are depending upon you, when, when, you've, when, when, when they uh, need something, want something, and, and, and you want to not let them down. I mean, they're, they're, it's one thing to be, to be able to do it in a situation like that. But to keep your promises in the midst of hostility toward you, of indifference toward you. That, that's, that's really, really a different call altogether. And that's really where I'm going with this message this morning, is that, that we know what it's like to deal with broken promises. We all know what it's like to be the one to break a promise and to see the hurt and the frustration people to have to deal with that kind of thing to God our maker would be devastating. This is a, a message about how Christmas is the beginning of the fulfillment of so many promises that had been long awaited, so long awaited that some began to wonder if they were ever going to be kept. Matthew chapter 1, verse starting in verse 21. 
She will bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. All this took place to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel. Dropping down into chapter 2. When Herod the king heard this, he was troubled in all Jerusalem with him. And assembling all the chief priests and scribes of the people, he inquired of them where Christ was to be born. They told him in Bethlehem of Judea, so it is written by the prophets. And you, O Bethlehem, in the hand of Judah, are by no means least among the rulers of Judah. For you shall, for from you shall come a ruler who will shepherd my people. Verses 14 through 13 through 17. Now when they had departed, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to Joseph in a dream and said, Rise, take the child and his mother and flee to Egypt and remain there until I tell you, for Herod is about to search for the child to destroy him. And he rose and he took the child and his mother by night and departed into Egypt and remained there until the death of Herod. This was to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet out of Egypt, I call my son. Then Herod, when he saw that he had been tricked by the wise men, became furious and sent and killed all the male children in Bethlehem and all the, that region who were two years old or under, according to the time that they had ascertained from the wise men. This was then was fulfilled what was spoken by the prophet Jeremiah. A voice was heard in Ramah, weeping in loud lamentation. Rachel weeping for her children. She refused to be comforted because they are no more. And then he comes and he returns to Nazareth. And he, being warned in a dream, he goes back to the district of Galilee, to Nazareth. And he went and lived in a city called Nazareth that what was spoken by the prophets might be fulfilled. He shall be called a Nazarene. Lord, I pray that you would help us this morning to understand the fact that your promises, even from the beginning of the life here on earth of our Savior, that you were fulfilling your promises, the most important promises to redeem your people. And step by step, we see those promises kept on our behalf and for your sake and glory. In Jesus' name, amen. The main point of chapter one with Matthew is the first thing I read. That you bear a son, call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. All this took place to fulfill what the Lord has spoken by the prophet. Behold, a virgin shall, shall conceive and bear a son. They shall call his name Emmanuel. Emmanuel. This is what we call the incarnation. There are implications and applications of Emmanuel. God with us. That Matthew's going to immediately explore in chapter 2. And the rest of the New Testament actually is going to build upon that God with us. And we will, we're, we're going to explore, I want to explore some of the other promises first, but then come back to this quote from Isaiah 7.14 and finish up by talking about 
what it means for God to be with us because really all of these other promises come out of that. And most of the response to Jesus is as a result of what it means, Emmanuel, with us. But let's take a look in chapter 2 at four of the promises that were fulfilled just in the birth of Jesus. One of the things to notice is that contrast that that uh, Matthew makes. Now, after Jesus was born in Bethlehem in Judea in the days of Herod the king, behold, the wise men from the east came to Jerusalem saying, where is the king of the Jews? Matthew is saying, Herod's the king, but the wise men are looking for the king. Everybody knew Herod was a usurper. And Matthew was making this point clean. There's not, the, the real king's not on the throne, folks. And these pagans from Persia know that. Okay? They're looking for the real king of the Jews. There's only one legitimate king. In chapter 1, Matthew has established through Jesus' lineage the, his claim to David's throne. His claim that Jesus is the real king. And now the usurper Herod is going to have to deal with the fact that that king has been born. And these three wise men, the wise men were these uh, uh, prophet wise men guys from Persia. and But they were really known as king makers. In other words, when they came on the scene, when they acknowledged that someone was the king, they were the king. I mean, they, they, they had prophetic gifts. They were pagans. They weren't believers. But, but they had this uh, ability astrologically to, to know things and understand things. I think astrologically is a word. If I didn't make it, if it's not a word, it should be. And there was this uh, understanding that, that these guys were... were were kingmakers. Now, Herod knew he was a usurper. And so he was afraid when they showed up. He was bothered by the fact that these Persian wise men are coming in and saying, we're looking for the king of the Jews. Oh, Herod. Where, 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 where is he? Well, he plays it cool. So, you know what? I don't know, but I'll find out. And you know, I'll ask my wise men. Well, they, they said, he said, they said, well, never mind, we've got a star. We'll just keep following the stars. It's led us this far. You're no help. We'll keep following the star. Well, of course, Herod begins to make plans to deal with this king. Now, this first promise here in Matthew chapter 2, the first promise that we're covering, is showing us that this claim that Matthew is making is legitimate because it fulfills this particular promise they told him in Bethlehem of Judea, them responding to Herod, the wise men responding to Herod, in Bethlehem of Judea, for so it is written by the prophet, so these pagan wise men are quoting Israel's prophets to Herod. Okay, just keep that in mind. And you, O Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are by no means least among the rulers of Judah, for from you shall come a ruler who will be shepherd 
who will shepherd my people Israel. A ruler who will shepherd. That's the promise that God made. He's not sending a ruler that is like all of the other natural rulers. He's fulfilling a promise that a king is going to come who will be the shepherd. What comes to your mind? King David, who was a shepherd. David is the model here. Not all of the kings that had come into play after David. The shepherd boy, the shepherd king. The king that we're looking for is the shepherd of our souls. And this promise is not just a ruler to rule with a staff and authority, which he has, but to rule as a shepherd caring for his flock. That's just one promise. Then Herod summoned the wise men, wanted to make sure things were dealt with, issues a decree to wipe out all of the children in Bethlehem. And again, <laughs> this is not surprising from Herod, okay? Herod had already killed several of his family members out of fear that they were going to usurp the throne from him. So killing a bunch of babies in, in Bethlehem was not beyond the scope of what he was willing to do. And in verses 14 and 15, we see Jesus' flight to Egypt to escape this Bethlehem massacre. The divine protection, the angelic appearance to Joseph can function as a, a uh, divine vindication like it was with Moses when, when Moses was put into to the river. There, there's this, this picture that Matthew has given us that, that God just intervenes in a very uh, uh, divine visionary way with this angel because he wants us to know that he was going to protect this one that he had sent who was the son of God. The quotes from Hosea 11.1 1 actually uh, and it's the narrative it's from the narrative about the first exodus where 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 the the, the there's this uh, the people coming out of Egypt so that it then sets up here, he's going back to Egypt, but it's going to fulfill what was spoken of the prophet in Hosea. Out of Egypt, I called my son. Verse 11 of Hosea 11 talks about this Exodus being a promise to bring the people back to the homeland. He's bringing the Messiah back to the homeland to rule because he's been protected by God in Egypt, which again sheds a whole nother light on the children of Israel being in Egypt. 
that while it, after 400 years, turned out to be problematic, it initially was the same thing. It was a flight to survive. And you see that being happening again here in the birth of Jesus. Again, Matthew is establishing Jesus' right to the throne of David. And then this next one, a voice is heard. You know, the first promise, there will be a ruler. The second promise, he'll come out of Egypt. The third part of this promise, a voice will be heard. Then Herod, when he saw that he'd been tricked by the wise men, became furious, killed these children. And then the words of Jeremiah, a voice was heard in Ramah, weeping and loud lamentation. Rachel weeping for her children. She refused to be comforted because they were no more. There was this voice of lamentation. The passage in Jeremiah is a reference to one of the most sorrowful times in Israel's history. Rachel, speaking of Bethlehem, because that's where she was from, it is, is, Weeping is, it, it's poetically describes how the favored mother, the mother of Benjamin, the tribe of Judah, is mourning because her descendants were being led into exile. And, and, and Bethlehem wept as the, the, her children, Bethlehem's about six miles south of, of, uh, uh Jerusalem. Ramah is about six miles north of Bethlehem, and that's the trap. That's the road. That's the path that they were traveling, being exiled out of the city of Jerusalem, both Ramah and Bethlehem being suburbs, so to speak, and they're 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 being led down this path, and the picture of uh, Rachel weeping for her children. This is prophetically, uh, the, the nuance of this is to, to, to show that, that Jesus' identification with Israel's exile is coming right from the book of Jeremiah. Chapter 31, which is where that prophetic word comes from, is the very same chapter that speaks of the hope of the coming Messiah. Rachel mourns, but God promises a restoration in that same chapter when he says, my dear son, the child in whom I delight will come and rescue and restore. A voice crying from the wilderness, help is on the way. It's going to happen. And then the fourth one in this chapter is an interesting one about he shall be called a Nazarene. It's in quotes. There's actually no verse that in, in, in the scripture, in the Old Testament, uh, saying he shall be called a Nazarene. It's actually a play on words. Samson, in Judges 13, is... <clears throat> The, the narrative about Samson's birth is very similar. 
the, where, where uh, I forget what his mother's name is, but, but she's visited by an angel to, and the angel tells her that she's going to have the son and he's going to be special. And the angel is saying, don't let him drink, don't cut his hair, make sure he takes the vow of a Nazarite, the Nazarite vow, okay? Vow, V-O-W, not vowel. <laughs> the, um, and, and so what Matthew is doing is, and in that passage, it says, he shall be called a Nazarite. Okay, so what Matthew is doing is using that passage with Jesus being uh, from Nazareth and called a Nazarene, it's a play on words that, that, that using the picture of Samson's strength and protection and, again, restoration of uh, fighting off the enemies, the Palestinian enemies of the people of God, this powerful Nazarite, you know, is saving the day. Matthew is, is using, possibly, uh, speculation on my part, that using this to, to, to give this picture that, that he's from Nazareth. He's going to play the part of the Nazarite who will bring protection and deliverance for our people. Very clever. It's a stretch to say it's a promise because it's not actually the words from Scripture. But it was a very clever usage of a play on words to make that point that is very true about Jesus Christ. And Matthew was, was clever, evidently. But now, back to chapter 1. God with us. One of Matthew's major points to the early church throughout his gospel was the authority of Scripture, authority of the Word. And for whatever other reasons God incarnated Jesus through a virgin, the only reason that Matthew lists is, quote, that Scripture might be fulfilled. Those three words, God with us, are the most amazing words that we as created beings could ever depend on. God is with us. God. Jesus is God. In the beginning, the words, in the beginning. When you, when you look at John chapter 1, those words, in the beginning, was the word. They're identical. They're the, they're the Greek words from the Old Testament. In the beginning, God. Jesus was God. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. That, that's what he says in, in verse 3 in Genesis. So in the beginning means before there was any created matter, there was the word, the Son of God, Jesus. He is eternal. God with us. The eternal God is with us in the person of Jesus Christ. The word was with God. This is, of course, the, 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 the heart of the 
doctrine of, of the Trinity, the incredible implications for us that the Son had then and is now in relationship with God is such a comfort for us. He's the image of God. He's perfectly reflecting who God is. And he's with us. He's, as, as uh, Thomas said, my Lord and my God, he's, he's with us. And the word became flesh. He dwelt among us. Jesus Christ was and is God. And, and the word that was made flesh is really good news. God could have chosen to be incarnate as a judge. All of us would be found guilty before him. And we would be sentenced justly to everlasting punishment. But he came full of grace and truth, John tells us. The word of God became flesh so that the death of Jesus Christ might be possible. God is gracious to us still. He's, he's true to himself in, in that sin had to be punished. But he's faithful to his promises to us, his gracious promise to us, because Jesus bore that punishment. The word became flesh is the fullness of grace and the fullness of truth. And it shines most brightly in the death of Jesus for sinners. God is with us. And we've been learning from Philippians that Jesus did not regard equality with God a thing to be latched onto or, uh, or, or used to his advantage. In Revelation 3, we, we, we talked about God walking among the churches. Jesus, excuse me, walking among the churches. Our fellowship with each other is rooted in the fact that we are in him and that he is with us. He is with us being in and through us by his spirit. Jesus' incarnation makes living by the spirit possible and living by the spirit makes incarnating Christ to others possible. This is all the promise of Emmanuel, God with us. Hebrews chapter 2, I want to read this to you because this is powerful from the standpoint of, of what it means for God to be with us. Give me a second while I find Hebrews. Hebrews chapter 2. I'm going to read verses 9 through 11. But we see him who for a little while was made lower than the angels, namely Jesus, crowned with glory and honor because of the suffering of death, so that by the grace of God he might taste death for everyone. For it was fitting that he, for whom and by whom all things exist, in bringing many sons to glory, should make the founder of our salvation perfect through suffering. For he who sanctifies and those who are sanctified all have one origin. That is why he is not ashamed to call them brothers. 
Jesus is with us purposefully to share in our sufferings, to share in our humanity. Jesus is with us not just to comfort, not just to demonstrate what a good God he is. It does do that. But he's, he's sharing in our humanity. He's sharing in our frustrations. He knew, it was very obvious, we were not living as we were meant to live. We were not being who we were created to be. The obscurity of Jesus' early life is a part of his sharing in our humanity. He willingly hid away in Nazareth, a small, dumpy little town, toiling as a carpenter, a big brother, a single man caring for his family, for a single mom. He, he was not just buying time before he stepped onto the stage. Theologically, he, he was meeting the law's demands. Romans 4 tells us that what we could not do, weak as we are through the flesh, he did. He did it for us. So that's what he's doing theologically. But, but humanly, he's sharing in our frustrations that we can't be who we're called to be because of sin. What are your frustrations? So much responsibility that you got no time for yourself? Feeling like you can never measure up? You're not the son you wanted to be. You're not the father you want to be. You're not the wife that you want to be. You're not the mother that you want to be. Every moment of every single day, he loved those he was around, interacted with integrity, served with abandon, loved the Lord his God with all his soul, heart, strength to earn our salvation and pave a way for us to walk out of the shame, out of the failure, into the promises of becoming what we were called to be. He shared in those frustrations. He knows what those frustrations are like. He shared in our sufferings. What did that earning salvation for us qualify him for? Death. He had to be perfect. Why? So he could die for us. Every day, dying in our place. Every day, loving those who rejected him. Serving those who would use him. He kept himself spotless. What are we suffering through right now? Physical pain, betrayal, hopelessness. This is the first use of the word suffering in Hebrews, but he'll, the author of Hebrews will go on to talk about Christ's anguish throughout life and death. He was exposed to all of the harsh realities of life which we are confronted with. Listen, the moment that that the decision was made for him to step out of heaven and become man. 
That is what he knew he was going for. Piper's right when he, he was answering the question that what does Christmas mean to him? And he used the illustration of feeling like he was drowning on the Titanic. If the Titanic was going down, everyone was dying. He was headed into the water. There was no hope. The lifeboats were full. He's in the water struggling. And the, the richest, most... Uh, powerful man in the boat jumps out of the boat to give him the place. And as he's drifting away, the man says, I did this because I love you. That's what Christmas meant to him. This, this man who had everything jumping into the waters to die so that I could live. That is what is taking place here. Jesus shared our frustrations, he shared our, our sufferings, but he also shared in our temptations. But unlike us, the temptations were resisted completely. The wilderness experience with the devil demonstrates that he did what we could not do because of the weakness of our flesh. He fulfilled the demands of of the law. He learned obedience through the things that he suffered. He endured the limitations of man without ceasing to be God. He was weak, limited, hungry, but he endured. Like us, he had to trust, lean on, and have faith that his sovereign father would lead him and deliver him not only from the temptations that he faced, but the death that he was going to suffer. Imagine the joy when the heavens opened and the Father spoke, This is my beloved Son in whom I am well pleased. Before any teachings, before any recorded miracles, just the active obedience of the Word made flesh. What hope for us in the mundane, frustrating, sorrow-filled lives that we have. We can hear those words because of him. No miracles, no teaching ministry, nothing. Well done. You, you are my beloved son in whom I'm well pleased. What hope. Our despair, our wandering has ceased. Our humanity has been transformed. We've been brought into the presence of God and we've been changed. The grace of God, the perfect sacrifice, that's the gospel message. Despair, wandering of cease, we, we live lives that point to a different reality now. A hope that overcomes weakness and frailty, the power of the Spirit to overcome temptation and sin, to be sanctified by the grace of God. He fulfilled that promise to be God with us in the face of hostility. The face of the suspicious, paranoid Herod had already had his wife, brother-in-law, and two sons killed. Now these Jewish babies. His whole inter interaction with the Magi was rooted in fear. But hostility has always been a response to the message of the gospel. 
The fulfillment of the promise doesn't bring joy and happiness to a world that's lost and dying. It brings anger, hostility. We see that. We feel that as we face a hostile world, hostile to the gospel, the hostile flesh that we live in, a angry, vindictive devil. I mean, we, we, we face those things, the hostility. He fulfilled those promises even in the midst of our indifference. It's hard to keep promises when you know people are expecting it. How hard is it to keep a promise with people who are indifferent to what you're doing in the first place? Indifference is such a common response to the found in Scripture, to, to the promise of the gospel, to the promise of the life of Jesus. It's a, a clash of values, the gospel and, and the things that we love in this kingdom of this world. The Magi valued power, but so did the priest who were part of the, the people of God that, that Jesus was coming to save. The tribe of Levi. The, the, the scribes who were mostly Pharisees, authorities on Jewish law, sometimes actually even called lawyers. They, they were recognized as the key scholars. And what was their, what was their value? They, their value was their role, their, the intellectual study, their ability to, to actually be overbearing because of their knowledge about these things and keeping the people in line with the law. Both of these groups should have been interested in Herod's questioning of Messiah. Luke portrays the indifference in the, in the story of the innkeeper. He, his focus on his business, his schedule, his work. You know, he, uh, the, the, the whole world was just indifferent. Who cares that this baby's being? But there are those who worshiped. The first to come and worship the Savior of the world, Gentiles. Now, how do you get astrologers, astrologers' attention? You show them a star. And that led them. And when they got there, they worshiped. Now, when they fell down and worshiped, they could have just been paying homage. But Matthew is clear that they worshiped better than they knew. Wesley's hymn says, says it perfectly. Veiled in flesh, the Godhead see. Hail the incarnate deity. Pleased as man with men to dwell. Jesus, our Emmanuel. What must Joseph and Mary have been thinking? How, how these gifts that came that actually paid for their trip and their time in Egypt. How, how, how do you explain these gifts? This homage. What does it mean? What it means is what we've been learning. Every knee will bow. And every tongue will confess. The first to bow were the pagan Persian kings, the Magi. The first to confess lowly, poor shepherds on a hillside. Every knee will bow. Every tongue will 
confess. Matthew is equipping his readers to see the reality that Jesus is not just checking off all the boxes to fulfill the scripture. He's also teaching them to look beyond the horizons of Israel and recognize that this is a Messiah for all the people. This passage is telling us that Christmas, the celebration of the coming of the Messiah, is not just celebrating the king of the Jews. It's not just the keeping of promises. It's the coming of the king of the Jews to save us from God's wrath, to transform our hearts, to give us the grace and the power to image him to a lost and dying and hostile and indifferent world. Lord, thank you for keeping your promises in the midst of the hostility and indifference. Lord, thank you for keeping your promises so that we might be a people who could be formed into the people by your spirit that you've called us to be. And so that we could articulate both intellectually and experientially what it means to be the recipients of your grace and your power and understand the truth of the gospel that we are to proclaim. Lord, help us to shout it from the rooftops. Help us, Lord, to both bend our knee and to confess with our mouths that Jesus Christ is Lord. Let's all stand.